John's Gospel and chapter 1. John 1, verses 1 to 34. Gospel of John, chapter 1. And I want you to notice how uh, this chapter is based on the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis, uh, in the creation account. And so what John is saying by replicating a lot of the imagery and language is that a new creation is taking place uh, before our eyes. In fact, everyone who believes on Jesus is a new creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of who, about who, Him, uh, I'm sorry, this was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who, uh, uh, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. And so on. May God bless that portion of His Word to us this morning. morning is taken in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1 at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. This is truly perhaps the greatest transformation that has ever happened in the history of the universe. The incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God. Where the Creator of the ends of the earth entered into His creation. Imagine a, a novelist writing a story and entering into, finding some way of entering into the story that he is writing. That would be incredible. Think of Tolkien entering into the Lord of the Rings, writing himself into it and becoming a, a character in the, in the story. But this is what Jesus did. He who was outside all things enters into the, the story of humanity. The incarnation, uh, the fact that the Son of God became a human being, is central to the Christian faith. It's one of the things that we believe. In fact, we've been studying in 1 John... And John says there that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. In other words, to deny that the Son of God was born as a baby in Bethlehem is to deny the faith. And that is uh, plain to see for many reasons. And we'll see those in a few moments. But John is saying here, the Word became flesh. He was made flesh. It expresses a change in His condition. It implies a, a, a completed action. In, in the sense that He can't go back from it. When Jesus was born as a baby in Bethlehem, I don't think many people kind of understand this. It wasn't as if He was a caterpillar who later shed his, his cocoon and uh, left off his humanity, and then when he goes back to heaven, he just turns back into the Son of God again as a spirit. But the idea of the Word made flesh speaks of a permanence. So that 
the dust of the earth is at the right hand of the Father today. That Jesus Christ, flesh and bone, though glorified, is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that is implied here in these words, He became flesh. Which is really the ultimate fulfillment of that word, Emmanuel. Which means God with us. God with us. That is a permanent condition that we now uh, can think of when we think of Jesus. That even right now, at this moment, He is Emmanuel. He will always be Emmanuel. He wasn't just Emmanuel when He was born in Bethlehem and left this earth 33 years later. But He remains that way. He remains that way in that He he bears our humanity. One of us is at the right hand of the Father. While at the same time, He still remains God. It was not a diminishing of deity. It wasn't a diminishing of His Godhood. If God could cast off His Godhood, He would no longer be God. He couldn't be God. It does not belong to the essence of who God is to stop being God. God can't stop being what He is, what makes Him glorious. And that is true of the Son of God. And Paul, for example, in writing in Colossians, as he is describing Jesus at present, He says the entire fullness of God's nature dwells in Christ. That's the glory of the incarnation that that the Son of God became something He wasn't before, and that is man, without ceasing to be what He was. God incarnate. That's what we are looking at. We are seeing the estranged, on the one hand, in the book of Genesis where Adam and Eve are estranged from God. The human race are estranged from God. They now make themselves God's enemy. So you have God on the one side. You have man who has become the enemy of God on the other. And there's this unbridgeable gap between them. Except for this wonderful event that now takes place in the person of Jesus Christ, where the Godhead and the manhood of, of our race are now, are now brought together in one person. And God is going to bridge that gap of what was broken in Genesis. That's why John intentionally starts off his Gospel by saying, in the beginning. In the beginning. Just like Genesis. So he's going back and he says, let's start this story over again. Let's fix the story by inserting the author into the story. Let's insert the one who... uh, Uh, was rebelled against and whose law was broken, 
lets him in, insert him into the story so he becomes its main character and its redeemer. This is the wonder of the incarnation. The Word became flesh. That one of us, one of our kinsmen, one of, one of the human race, was joined with a heavenly nature, with a, with a, a God, a, 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 a deified nature in one person. Matthew Henry said, so beautifully, he said, the voice that said, all flesh is grass was made flesh and withered like the grass. Isaiah 40, God says, all flesh. That means all of us. And all of our accomplishments and all our glory is as grass. And the voice that said that, He became that for us. He went down to such lengths. And I think in part that's why we have Jesus being born in a manger because it's a picture of just how far the Son of God came down to rescue us. But a smelly manger, of course, is nothing compared to the lengths to which Jesus ultimately would go. That smelly manger was like the Ramada compared to what uh, Jesus would undergo, the, the depths to which Jesus would sink. And God is preparing us for that by allowing Him to be born in a manger. Because it's setting us up. It's getting us thinking. It's getting the, the gears rolling in our minds to say, look at how far this person has come. This one who is the song of angels is now being born in such lowly circumstances. But the incarnation, this idea that the Word became flesh, not only tells us how far the Son of God came down to rescue us, but it also tells us the value and the dignity of every human soul here this morning and in the world. I've been reading a book by Glenn Shrivener called The Air That We Breathe. It's a brilliant book. And it's talking about the things that we now take for granted in terms of equality and justice and all of these things, which we take for granted, but up until a few hundred years ago, they were not taken for granted. They were not universal givens. The dignity of all people. Greek philosophers Aristotle and Plato would say some are better than others. Some men are born slaves and some are born into greatness. That's always the way it will be. And that's the way the universe has designed it. The Christian faith comes along and says no. All men are created in the image of God and therefore should be afforded dignity. And so we treat one another with dignity because we are all created in the image of God. Rich or poor, no matter what country we come from, we see one another in that way. But that's how God dignified the human race. You were made in the image of God. But He dignified it in an even greater way by 
becoming what we are. Isn't that an amazing thing? He not only made us in His image, and you may say, okay, that's wonderful. We have dignity, and we ought to treat one another with dignity. That's what drove the abolition of the slave trade under William Wilberforce and other people of his day. It drove that into the ground. It abolished it because it was wrong to hold men and women in shackles. But the fact that Jesus became one of us, that He had a heartbeat, that He had flesh and blood, also dignifies the human race and who we are and what we are. As I mentioned last week, the great uh, Christmas carol, O Holy Night, it said, He appeared and the soul felt its worth. He appeared and the soul felt its worth. The shepherds felt their worth. The wise men felt their worth not in their wisdom, not in their riches, but in the child that was there. The woman at the well who had had five husbands and now she was living with a man, she felt her worth. You see, friends, it's only when we come and understand this that we are, A, created in the image of God, and that God became as one of us that we begin to see who we are and why we're here. So Jesus, in this awesome event of the Word becoming flesh, uh, bridges that gap. And nothing will bridge the gap between you and God without Jesus. That's the point. The Word became what you are. The Word became like me, and the Word became like you. And that was the only way. He's gone to such lengths, you see, to bridge the gap between you and God. And that's where our response that must come in. What does this mean for me this morning that the Word became like me? That the Word became flesh? He says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, it means pitched His tent. Here, what John does is goes back and he uses imagery from the Old Testament where the children of Israel we're told to build a tabernacle in the wilderness. And they were to offer sacrifices in that. Again, the sacrifices were a means of bridging the gap between sinful man and a holy God. And over that tabernacle, for those 40 years, as it followed them through the wilderness, was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. It was called in the Hebrew the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God. It was God saying, it's my desire to be with you. To be present with you. All these things were emblems of God's desire to draw near. So that even within that tabernacle, there was a table like this with bread on it. God says, put bread on it. Why? Because I want a fellowship with you. 
I want to draw near to you. And so God tells them to build this tabernacle, this place of worship, this place of sacrifice in the desert so that He could reveal His glory of forgiveness and grace and of His presence. Even in the Old Testament, He was saying, I want to be with you. Peter was saying last night about that the idea of the whispers of the Old Testament. And that's a beautiful way of the whisper, God whispering in his people's ear, I want to draw near. I want to be with you. I'm coming for you. I'm going to live with you in a way that will blow your mind. That's what he is saying. And so then it tells us in Exodus 40, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Same thing that happens in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 10 with King Solomon when he built Solomon's temple. And the glory was felt so powerfully that they, the priests had to get out. And so John says here, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we uh, beheld His glory. We have seen His glory. And that's what we see next. He beheld His glory. Moses prayed that prayer when he was exhausted. He was at his wit's end. The people were getting on top of him. Life was just pulling him this way and that way. And he didn't know how he was going to go on. And he cries out to God, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. This is his heart's cry. This is why we celebrate Christmas. God has come and He's shown us His glory. His glory has appeared. Have you seen it? Have you heard about it? Is it transforming your life? Is it making a difference in your life? This is what Moses prayed to see. And God showed him His glory on the mountain. He showed him a glimpse of His glory. But that glory would not be fully seen until that night in Bethlehem, when the angels proclaimed to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest. In other words, that yearning that Moses had to see the glory of God was not going to be seen in terms of light going off. Not exclusively in miracles that were happening. Health and wealth and all of these things. But the angels were directing the shepherds to the true glory of God. For unto you is born. Hear those words? Unto you. You shepherds. Dirty, unclean, untrustworthy. Unto you is born. This day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's His glory. That's where His glory would ultimately lay. And so when Jesus comes, the glory of God is seen in all its fullness. And so John says here, the Word became flesh 
and lived among us, tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. It's as if John is picturing himself like one of the old ancient Israelites standing outside the tabernacle, seeing the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of smoke by day. And they're saying, look at the glory of God living with us. Where we go, it goes. It's as if, why does God, the maker of the universe, want to identify himself with a nomadic group of Hebrews wandering through the desert? This is the question. Why would God do such a thing? Doesn't God have better things to do? He has a whole universe to run. Why is he particularly bothering himself with these Hebrews who are just would spend 400 years in slavery. What kind of people are they? Complaining. Rebelling. We don't have enough of this. We've got too much of that. Constantly complaining against God. And yet there's God saying, I want to be with you. I, I want... What is God doing? And we see that here in these words of how the glory is manifested. Glory is of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is where the glory of God is particularly seen in Jesus. So that when Jesus' birth is announced, particular attention is given to His name. Call him this. Don't call him that. Call him this. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. That God will be gracious to his people. That God will make a name for himself out of these Hebrew slaves that were there for 400 years. He will forgive their sins, He will bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And His glory will spill out beyond the borders of Israel to the nations, to the world, to the continents of the world. And the people will hear about how they can get right with God. How they can deal with their conscience. How they can heal the hurts of the past and deal with the fears of the future through this Savior. And they will come and they will behold His glory, which is manifest in His grace and in His truth. This is where we see Jesus' glory. This is what John is directing us to. The miracles, the signs, and the wonders were simply signposts to something greater. You say, how can it be greater than a miracle? How can it be greater than turning water into wine or making the dead to rise? Greater, greater things yet. Son, your sins are forgiven you. He says to prostitutes. He says to people who were a few moments ago in the act of adultery. And he says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He says to tax collectors, thieves. 
He says to the thief on the cross who moments before was condemning him and cursing him. Now Jesus turns to that same man and he says, this day you will be with me in paradise. That is the glory of Jesus, friends. And the birth of Jesus was surrounded with that. Even the announcement by Simeon, who says, now my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory for your people Israel. And then he turns to Mary, his mother, and he says, a sword will pierce your own heart. Why does he have to ruin the moment with this talk of swords piercing hearts? Because Simeon himself knew the nature of the glory of the one he was holding. He knew how it was he was going to become the light to the nations. He understood how it was he was going to become the glory of Israel. It was through his death. It was through his crucifixion on the cross. It couldn't be any other way. And so John says, he is full of grace and truth. Grace means getting what we do not deserve. We deserve punishment. That's why he says here, the law came through Moses. The law was good. The law came through Moses. What was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to say, guilty, guilty, guilty. You're a dead man. You're finished. And Paul says the law was good because just like a, 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 an x-ray at the hospital or an MRI, it shows you the cancer that is there. In spite of what you may think, in spite of what you may feel, the law comes and it says, here's the cancer. And unless that cancer is dealt with, you will die. And when the Bible shows us our sin, the law came through Moses, you see. What it was doing what God was doing through the law was preparing the people. People were saying, we can't do it. The law is condemning us. The law is crushing us. But then, grace and truth come through the Lord Jesus Christ in a, in a measure that the human race has never seen before. Where the law condemns. Jesus sets free. How does He do it? He comes and He lives the perfectly righteous life. He doesn't do anything wrong. He doesn't think anything wrong. He doesn't say anything wrong. He does not break the law of God one single bit. He fulfills it 100%. And then, what happens in the great exchange is that when Jesus goes to the cross, God takes your sin and my sin and He lays it on Jesus. That's why He died. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death and that's why Jesus died. That's why He suffered. Because the wages of your sin became His death. But now, Paul says, not only does He take our sin, 
He gives us His righteousness. So that all the good that Jesus did, the fulfilling of the law, 100%, God now puts it in your bank account. He puts it and He sees you as having done all the things that Jesus did. And that's why He says here, He's full of grace and truth. Grace overflowing. Grace upon grace. And this is what will characterize the new creation. This is what will characterize the new start. Let's start over again. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same Word that becomes flesh. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh. Who became flesh? God. The Word was God. And into that, into our experience, grace upon grace, we have no excuse. And that's why the Gospels just pull in every wretch you could ever find and say, and God loves on him, shows grace to them, forgives them. They can't get away. They can't deny it. It's just unbelievably gracious and loving and forgiving. Is that our experience today? How can we deny such a wonderful salvation? He demands perfection. We can't give it, but Jesus did. He gives the very thing He demands that we can't give. That's the greatest gift, friends. Maybe you've opened your gifts. Maybe you haven't yet. Maybe you're waiting for Maybe you did it last night. Maybe you're going to do it this evening or after you get home from church or whatever. But what gift can compare to the gift of God's own Son? Who, though He was rich, in heavenly glory, yet for our sake, for your sake, he became poor. How did He become poor? By becoming sin for us. By having our wretchedness laid upon us. So that we, through His poverty, might become rich. You see the glory of the incarnate Son of God then this morning. This is what this season is all about. This is what this day is all about. And here on this Christmas day that falls on a Sunday, we're celebrating both the birth and the resurrection of Jesus. We are celebrating the One who was born, died, and rose again in that same body in which He was born. And so, I want to ask then you this morning, if you have seen the manifest glory of God in Jesus Christ, if you have not, then do yourself a favor. Do your soul a favor. And call upon God. Don't celebrate Christmas without Jesus? Don't celebrate Christmas without the one uh, 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 that, uh, that is contained in the very meaning of the Word. 
Don't do that. Don't deceive yourselves. But truly celebrate the day by humbling yourself and saying, Jesus, You made me in Your image. You became like me in Your in a human nature. But You took my sin on that cross so that what was whispered in the Old Testament where God was saying, I want to be with You. I want to be near You. Now, Lord, not only are You near me and around me, but You're in me by Your Holy Spirit. It's like God can't get close enough to us. He can't get near enough. He comes to live within you and give you that victory. And as He says, greater is He who is in you than he that is in the world. That's what Emmanuel is. That's what the Emmanuel principle is all about. Not only God becoming like us, but God with us and God in us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let us pray.